Hello and welcome for the Swineses Reporting System, report number 60. My name is Giovanni Trevisan with the Swineses Reporting System. Hi, my name is Guilherme Cesar, also at the SDRS studio. Hello, Daniel Linhares, also at the SDRS studios. And today we are going to uh, cover the finds from Swineses Reporting System from the month of January of 2023. But before of that, we have the pleasure to have a special guest, that's Dr. Jordan Hebhardt joining us here in the podcast. Dr. Gebhardt is assistant professor at Kansas State University, where he has obtained his DVM and PhD degree. Dr. Gebhardt researches focuses on production medicine, the safety of livestock feed and nutrition. Part of his work has been includes establishing guidelines on the feed supply chain to mitigate foodborne infectious diseases in the swine industry. Dr. Gebhardt, welcome to the Sciences Reporting System. Well, thank you very much uh, for the invitation and the opportunity to, to visit today on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Gabriel, for joining us. So before we go for uh, your considerations, we're going to cover the month of January's finds of the SDRS. So Guilherme, would you mind you provide us what is the main finds for January of 2023 for the Sciences Reporting System? Yes, sure. Let's start for the first page of the report for the first virus that we have an increased activity of uh, detection of percentage of false submissions coming from sow farm that is expected for this winter, for this month of January. But also we got a decrease in the winter market category, what's not expected for the month of January. And looking for the prediction model that we start to build like for the year of 2023 of the SDRS, we are also expecting an increased activity of herds during all the year. So you're saying that you are expecting an increase in the percentage of positive submission for PERS virus. Why are you expecting that? What the advisory group tells us? Well, according to our advisory group, uh, the wind to finish sites are being closely monitoring. So part of this increased detection is because we are testing more for PERS and also the presence of novel strains that are circulating on farms. So it maintains the sites, positive sites for long, longer times. And moving right now is still in the first page of first, but moving to the sequencing part, just to, to talk about these novel strains and sequences that are being detected on farms. For the L1C variant, for example, in January, uh, Missouri has been the epicenter of the detections that we are having 53 sequences classified as L1C variant in January from Missouri. Uh, higher than Iowa, that is the first time that we have a month that Missouri is has more detecting than Iowa and Minnesota that usually has more strains detected. And also I would like to highlight that in November of 2022 was the month that we have the highest number of sequences classified as L1C variant with 366 sequences classified as L1C variant 144. And moving to a strain that is a hot topic right now is the first virus RFLP124 lineage C that also had the highest number of detections throughout all the 2022. Just to give an example, since 2009 to 2021, 420 sequences were classified as this lineage and this RFLP. And only in 2022, 264 were classified as RFLP124 lineage 1C. So just to highlight the increased detection that we are having for this specific strain. And what the device group tells us about these two strains? Well, mainly for the RFLP124 uh, lineage 1C, our divided groups has reported a variety of clinical signs. Some farms just have abortions, for example, uh, in the farms that are having these specific strain. And also some of them has like 
severe cases with cell mortality, abortions, and also high pre-renin mortality. Thank you for that update, Ilham. How about the entire coronavirus? What we have to tell about those two agents? Well, for PED and Delta coronavirus, we are having an increased percentage of positive submissions coming from all the age categories. And this is expected for the month of January as well. And is within expected in our predicted model. However, you know, in the ISU VDL, we are having a report of an uptick number of confirmed tissue diagnosis cases for both diseases. So these, what, what does mean? This is diagnosticians that are assigned confirmed tissue diagnosis based on clinical sign, uh, tests performed, and also the histological lesions. And if you talk about PED and Delta coronavirus, if I recall correctly, in 2021, we had a spike in detection of PED the Delta coronavirus in the month of January, mm -hmm. and in 2022 was for PED. Any lesson learned that the advisory group share with us about how can we contain spread of those agents? Well, two main lessons that the advisory mentioned about it, these both uh, outbreaks that we have from Delta and PED. Uh, first is the monitoring of the animals that we have. We could monitor more animals in the winter finish sites at placement, and also when we are loading these animals for marketing, So you can keep track that we are having a positive flow to not like disseminate this virus from another sites or site to site or in the way to the packing plant, for example. And, and also another importance that they, another important uh, topic that they mentioned about it was the auditing process of biosecurity, mainly regarding transportation sanitation and also biosecurity compliance uh, among sites. There are lessons learned that we can improve these biosecurity methods, mainly in grow to finish sites to avoid this kind of outbreaks. Great information there. Thanks for sharing that, Glenn. What can you tell us about porcine cycle virus type 2? Well, moving to the third page right now. So to PCV2, we are having an increased uh, percentage of detection in all the age categories, but mainly in the win to finish category that we are having a moderate increase. And what the advisory group tells us about that? Well, uh, some of the advisory group mentioned that they, they are having high activity occurring in Iowa and in Minnesota with clinical cases there. And uh, the, the SDRS team could analyze that, that and break down this information by submission and CT values that we are having. And we could verify that we are having lower CT values when we are uh, looking to these specific submissions for PCV2. For example, in Iowa, we have a drop of the minimum CT values of 26 to 24 in average of all the submissions. So something to keep looking there and keep monitoring is CV2. Exactly. How about mycoplasma harmony? Well, for mycoplasma, we have good news regarding 2022 because in 2022, we have the lowest percentage of positive detections coming from South Farm since 2011. So this is a good news for the U.S. And also when we run the prediction model for this year of 2023, the trend is to decrease Uh, the percentage of positive, not only cell farm, but overall for mycoplasma in this year. So what the advisory group tells us about this activity of mycoplasma harmony? Well, our advisory group highlighted that the protocols that they are using for eliminated controlling mycoplasma were successful in 2022, and that's what contributed for the percentage of positive and cell farms decrease for this specific year. And also one key measure that they share with us, that they mentioned that they are having, if you are having a large supply of negative guilds, When you are throughout this uh, elimination protocol, and when the elimination protocol is ended, it's going to help you to maintain this site as a negative site for a longer time, since you are not introducing positive animals into the specific site. So great information there shared by the advice group, and looks good in the horizon for my plasma. 
Any updates from the disease diagnosis? Yes, uh, for the disease diagnosis, even though it's a limited number of cases per week, uh, around four cases, for example, we are having an, an uptick in the number of uh, confirmed tissue diagnosis for APP and for Mulberry heart disease. But just to give an example, usually we have one to two cases, one to two cases per week, and now we are having four to five cases. That's great, Guilherme. Thank you for providing us the update from the Swine Disease Reporting System from the month of January. And now we will move on for the conversation with Dr. Gebhardt that will focus on feeding radiating by security. So we have Dr. Jordan here in the podcast, and he also provided us a bonus page for this month in this subject. So it's full on board. Well, Looking forward to visit a little bit more. Oh, perfect. Let's start with the first question, Dr. Gebhardt, that we have. Uh, your research group has been working on how swine pathogens can disseminate through animal food manufacturing and facilities, be transported, and infect the swine population, for example. And we have some data regarding ASF, PED, PERS. And could you uh, say to us, like, how these pathogens can be viable and how do they disseminate over the swine population across the country? Yeah. Great question to begin with, uh, to begin our discussion here today. And, and what's really interesting is, is a lot of this work in the area of feed biosecurity, it's a relatively new area of research and speci specifically for swine viruses. There's been quite a bit, bit of information generated over time on the bacteria side, particularly with salmonella and, and some other high impact bacterial pathogens. But it's really been the past decade that our understanding of these swine viruses has really shifted into the area of feed ingredients and the feed mill and the feed supply as a whole. And what we've learned over, over that decade or so, or just under 10 years, is uh, really advanced our knowledge in understanding that uh, virus loves to distribute within an environment. And this isn't all that new when we think about some other pathogens like PERS, for example. But what multiple research projects have shown is that if we take virus such as PD or ASF and inoculate a feed mill, feed dust becomes widely distributed within that feed mill. And along with that feed dust, the virus becomes widely distributed or widely disseminated within that feed mill. So what we can do from a, a biosecurity perspective to avoid that initial introduction or that initial contamination of a virus entering the feed mill is a really, really important piece, the concept of bioexclusion and avoiding that pathogen from coming in in the first place. However, once a pathogen does get into a feed mill, the feed system is extremely complex. A large number of ingredients from large geographic areas feed trucks and ingredient trucks coming up and down the road every day. So it's not only understanding the feed itself, in particular ingredients and, and that final manufactured feed, and understanding the risk that that poses, but also recognizing there's a lot of logistics involved with manufacturing and delivering that feed. A lot of people coming and going from the feed mill to different farms, feed trucks coming and going from different farms. So this whole concept of, of the feed system being very complex, and now uh, our improved knowledge that pathogens like viruses can be involved in, perhaps in that process through various potential routes of introduction really changes the way that we think about biosecurity in relation to the feed supply as a whole. And that's very, very interesting. And can you, can, let's dive a little bit deeper on, on this topic. 
uh, Dr. Gebhardt, you've been active uh, researching. So let's use, for example, the PED virus as an example. Uh, how, how, well, let's bring it that back to what can actually be done uh, out in the field to, as it relates to feed the viral survival in, the, in feed deliveries and the feed system and what can producers do to kind of break that cycle. Yeah, and uh, this is a really good opportunity that uh, when the question comes up, I like to visit with producers about generally when we think of, of biosecurity related to feed biosecurity, we think about the bio exclusion component. How do we keep virus or keep a pathogen out of the feed or out of the mill? And in situation certainly with, with an endemic circulating pathogen such as the PED virus, we also we need to think about the, the bio exclusion piece but also the flip side, the biocontainment. We know that if a farm is, is infected with PED, those, pig, those animals, those sows, or whether it's a sow farm or a nursery or grow finish farm, those animals still need feed. So we still have feed trucks coming up and down the road. Shifting focus a little bit and improving the way we think about biocontainment of pathogens, if we have an infected site, what procedures do we have in place to reduce the likelihood of that feed truck or that feed truck driver from becoming contaminated and then bringing that contamination back to the mill. And then from there, it could potentially be introduced into the, the feed ingredients and then the final feed, or just on the truck itself or on the person themselves when they go to the next farm uh, that may not be affected at that point, uh, could potentially spread and, and disseminate the pathogen from there. So really what we've learned in the case of PED is that at, at actively infected farms, there's a large amount of virus that exits that facility, gets on the outside of feed bins, is in walkways or areas where feed truck drivers walk, and, and enhancing the way we think about biocontainment and keeping that pathogen on that site and preventing us from bringing it back to the feed mill or to other farms through the transportation logistics perspective is a really, really important area that largely is an industry we, we haven't implemented as well as we could or should. How common is it to have truck washed, washed uh, truck wash stations around the feed mill like we have in some uh, production, swine production systems, right? Is that something that is picking up or is it gonna grow in importance or how, what, what, where are we in that regard? Yeah, if if uh, if it's challenging to wash all market trailers and in a very active and, and ongoing area of discussion, there's even less done on the feed truck side. Um, for feed mills try to wash the at least the outside exteriors of trucks periodically, and it, it certainly can depend based on production system and feed mill. But if I'd say uh, the outside of a feed truck is washed once a day, once a week, that's doing pretty good. Um, so within the course of that week, that truck is going to numerous farms, um, periodically sanitizing tires or sanitizing the truck cab area, the foot pedals, the floor mat, for example. The degree in which that done can, can vary quite a bit, but largely as an industry, we don't sanitize feed trucks uh, nearly as much as some other parts of the world. Um, for example, there's um, um, some swine producers in, in Vietnam that every feed truck coming back to the feed mill and every feed ingredient truck coming into the mill has high pressure water and is sanitized and disinfected both the out exterior surface of that truck, but also the cab every time that vehicle comes back to the feed mill. Um, it's a lot harder to do that uh, in our US-based systems. Um, in the upper Midwest this time of year, for example, very challenging to, to be outside and wash trucks and trailers 
um, uh, at the scale needed for feed trucks. So that's something that uh, it would be highly effective at reducing that risk. Um, but largely as an industry, we haven't implemented very well yet. Good to know at least some, in some part of the world it's being done. So it's a proof of concept, right? Can you don't? Yeah, there is, there is a way to do it. Yep, absolutely, and and that's a great illustration, and and that that uh, that part of the world active ASF circulation, uh, and they know that they need to be very very thorough in biosecurity practices to to avoid that transmission, and under those conditions, highly labor intensive, and it uh, has to be in the right environment. Um, but the data shows that it can be highly effective. So if anything, we know we know what we need to do if we uh, really want to do really want to be dedicated to preventing that transmission. So that, that raises up a, a question for you, Dr. Gebhard. You mentioned African swine fever around the world. And we know that in the United States, this is one of the foreign animal disease threats that we have for swine production. And talking about feed, looks like you have been doing some work there about uh, how this virus could survive in feed ingredients, how could go throughout, towards batches and What's your take home of this the research? What have you learned that we could share with the U.S. producers? And Absolutely. And that's been a, a really interesting area and an active area, um, not only of some of our research capabilities here at certain research institutions at the United States and, and our collaborators in Canada, but also being able to do some field-based research um, in areas that are unfortunate to be, to be dealing with those outbreaks. We've really learned a lot. In, in the earlier days, we, we did a lot of swine bio, feed biosecurity related work with PED. And then really in 2018 into 2019, when ASF continued to, uh, to expand uh, across the globe, we started doing some more ASF feed specific projects. And one of the concepts there that we learned from PED is that once you inoculate that virus into a feed mill, it becomes widely distributed within the mill. And we think because of that dust, the interaction between the dust particle and that viron, or that virus itself, that virus becomes widely distributed. The viral makeup or even the, the relative size of PED versus ASF, they're very, very different viruses. So we really didn't know if, if we inoculate ASF into a feed mill, would it be that same electrostatic charge um, that we believe uh, between that dust particle and that virus particle, would that be similar? Would we see those same distribution characteristics of ASF within the mill? And what the research showed us was that absolutely, when we inoculate ASF in a controlled research setting into a feed mill, that virus goes everywhere, becomes widely distributed within that feed mill. And also after multiple batches of feed after that contaminated a batch, we can still find the virus present within that feed as well as on the surfaces. And then if we take that feed or take those surfaces and store it up to six months at room temperature and use PCR to look at the amount of viral DNA, that DNA is incredibly stable in that environment or in that feed over time. Now, we weren't able to determine whether or not that, that DNA could cause infection or if that's a viable virus, but from the terms, in terms of going in and, and understanding what happened, a disease outbreak situation, going in and, and knowing that that viral DNA is incredibly stable can help us within our diagnostic assessments in the field and understanding potential gaps in biosecurity practices. And through all of that research, one of the biggest gaps that we've identified today is needing improvement is, the, is people within the feed supply. 
Um, we, so we did one of those projects here at Kansas State uh, where we went into some BSL-3 facilities, um, cr created a feed mill, inoculated some feed, and then collected these, these samples we've been talking about. And one of the interesting samples that we collected was the bottom of researcher boots throughout that process. Once we put that virus into the feed and mixed that feed, every single sample we took after that point in time from the bottom of a researcher boot contained ASF DNA. Even hours later, every single sample from the bottom of a boot, we found ASF DNA. And that, and that uh, matches up with what we see in the field, that some high traffic areas where people are coming and going, um, that's really some of the, the areas with the greatest level of contamination. Now, this isn't all that shocking, but viruses like ASF don't have legs. People, we do. Um, so really understanding the movement of people and, and that being a means by which we are moving around a pathogen within the feed supply or from farm to farm. We've got some really interesting data that we need to consider where people are moving, how we're disinfecting shoes, and implementing biosecurity practices to address people as a potential risk of spreading pathogens like ASF or PED. So if I learn correct by what you are saying is that if we get contaminated feed meal and that could be a source of dissemination of uh, ASF across our production system. Absolutely, yep. Lots of feed trucks coming and going to multiple sites. And every time there's a feed delivery, there's a feed truck driver involved in that delivery. So there's a lot of potential to move pathogens within a swine production system. Not only focusing specifically on feed or ingredients, which is where we direct a lot of our attention, but also understanding the logistics side of it, the movement of people or the movement of trucks as well. Mm -hmm. So good to understand that uh, importance of biocontainment and biosecurity, including trucks and people, right? And what else can be done, Dr. Gephardt, to kind of mitigate, let's say we have uh, some unexpected virus introduction, introduction to the feed system. How can people mitigate the risk to further spread that to pigs? Absolutely. And when I go through these discussions, I like to break it up into two sections. There's, there's a prevention standpoint, the biosecurity, uh, and that partially depends on what type of pathogen we're concerned with. Something like a foreign animal disease, uh, ASF, for example, or CSF, if that was to be introduced via the feed supply, that would, we would largely bring that in, we believe, from ingredients from countries or from regions that are affected. So if it's specifically focusing on a, a foreign animal disease, really focusing on ingredients is important. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we're focusing more on an endemic pathogen, um, PERS, PED, Seneca virus, for example, it's not only focusing on the ingredients coming into the mill, but also all those other things, the transportation piece. So really, I, we, we jump to the mitigation piece quite often but I think really honing in on the prevention, the biosecurity, we really need to think through that. What can we do from a, a simplistic understanding people movement or truck movement and disinfecting trucks, for example, periodically. So really enhancing our prevention is important. And then once we do that, then we can move to the mitigation side. And specifically for feed or feed ingredients, there's a couple of different strategies that we can use. And I describe these as, as point-in-time mitigation strategies or residual approaches. And some of the point-in-time strategies, what that simply means is at that point in time that that treatment is applied, 
we would expect that any pathogen would, would not remain active or viable. However, any point thereafter, if recontamination were to happen, that feed could then go on and cause infection. And if we compare that to something that has a residual approach, typically those are when we think about adding a feed additive to that feed, that once it's added, we would expect some level of control or protection after that time of feed manufacture. So both have their pros and cons and, and some specific examples of those. Some of the procedures that would be point in time strategies are something like holding time holding a feed ingredient for 30 days at 75 degrees Fahrenheit in a heated warehouse, for example, that at the end of that, we would expect a certain level of viral mitigation. But if then we were to recontaminate, there would be no residual protection. So holding time of ingredients or finished feed is, is one mitigation strategy, as well as thermal processing. And one of the more common thermal processes that we apply in the feed industry would be pelleting of complete diets. Mm -hmm. um, so under those conditions, that can certainly have some activity at reducing the survival of, of viruses within the feed. And then on the residual approach, those are typically our feed additives. Lots of different chemistries available within that of either changing the, the pH, um, formaldehyde-based products, several different commercially available products that although they don't generally have any label claims of efficacy for viral mitigation, there is scientific data available in the literature with many of those products indicating uh, potential antiviral properties. So those are some of the things that can be done. I, it's e really easy to, to jump to the feed mitigant. I'm going to add something to my diet to, to reduce risk and to, to save my farm. But I think that's somewhat of a short-sighted approach that we need to think about the bio-exclusion pieces or the bio-containment pieces, implement those well. Then if we want another layer of protection or another layer of insurance, then we can add on the thermal processing or the feed additives. Jordan, there is any kind of protocol that are being established for these countries that we have ASF and we are importing some feed ingredients like are, are we going to test them to see if they are positive or not or what they're yep. about? Great question. And, and the, the testing piece is a really sore subject because um, industry and producers want to do that. We want to test. We want to test incoming ingredients and establish whether that contamination is present or not. The testing capability is non-existent. We can't test feed ingredients today. All of that testing would have to be done through the NALM lab system or with federal oversight. We just can't do that here today. Um, so there is already being implemented uh, a, it's hard to put an exact number, but I would say a good percentage of the industry, certain ingredients are being holding times is the most common that if amino acids or vitamins are coming in from Southeast Asia, they sit in a warehouse for 45 or 60 days before they can be released to a feed mill to be used. So that's, that's being used quite readily or quite routinely. But the challenge with that is the specific procedures are tremendously variable. Some are doing 30 days at 75 Fahrenheit. Some are doing 45 days at 65 some are doing 60 days at ambient and Minnesota this time of year, very, very cold, even in the warehouse. So there's a lot of variation in how those holding times are done. So we really can't test, but people are doing holding times, but we kind of need to standardize what, what that time temp, comp, those time temp combinations are and how do we make it consistent across the industry. It's a good mm -hmm. questions for the producers to ask to their suppliers, right? Hey, how are Absolutely. you managing that? So. 
Yep. And a lot are, and most all the, the large suppliers are aware of it, know of it, um, would be willing to do something, but the, the goal of the ship program over the next year, trying to standardize what that looks like a little bit, that they could be ship approved suppliers for certain ingredients, meaning that they meet this certain temperature threshold for a set period of time. Cause really we don't, I, I don't think it's in our, the industry's best interest to have every producer know exactly every time temperature combination and understand the the viral decay mechanisms of different pathogens. I don't think it needs to be that prescriptive. All they need to know is this feed or this ingredient is in compliance with those best practices. So the SHIP program is kind of that means or that mechanism to to here's what those standards are. The feed supplier does it. So really making it as simple and as easy as possible for the end user. So, Dr. Gebhardt, you lead the U.S. Soil Health Improvement Plan Working Group on Feedback Security. And considering the current scenario of the soil industry, what are the challenges and opportunities that is out there in this area of work? Yeah, we're really excited to be a part of the U.S. SHIP program, specifically in the, the area of feed biosecurity here. Uh, it's a terrific partnership of industry, state, as well as federal partners that really get everybody together to have the good discussions about a variety of topics, sampling and testing, biosecurity, uh, lots of different approaches and a lot of benefit as an industry. Specifically in the area of feed biosecurity, as mentioned, we've learned a lot over the past decade in this area. But what's become very evident is there, there's a large degree in which different production systems and different producers implement these practices. Um, many uh, uh, believe it's an area that we need to continue to refine and improve, but there's a tremendous variation in how people go about actually doing that. So the concept of a U.S. SHIP program, where we bring everybody to the table, have active and, and ongoing discussions about what would some of these best practices in feed biosecurity look like, um, and, and really having active discussion, coming to a general consensus of a clear path forward as an industry is a terrific opportunity for us to, to establish those improvements. So some of the specific areas that, that uh, the feed, in feed biosecurity within the U.S. SHIP program, and the first House of Delegates meeting, there was a, um, a proposal put together or a program standard focusing on swill feeding or garbage feeding. And we know that that could be a potential risk of, of food scraps, for example, with ASF specifically. So that was a program standard in year one. Then we followed that up in year two with another um, program standard that focused on the modifications of feeding standards or feeding programs in the event of an ASF or CSF incursion. So that was a program standard that we discussed and, and was ultimately passed in year two. And now moving into year three, one of the important areas we're focused on is bringing ingredients into the U.S. from areas that have foreign animal diseases like ASF or CSF. How can we safely do that? What are some of those practices that we can not only are effective, but we also can do as an industry and not make it overly burdensome on that end user? So our working group is excited to, to work with several key partners in this area to understand what such a program would look like and how we could implement that as an industry as part of the U.S. SHIP program. So it's a really unique program, um, bringing again those industry, state, and, and federal partners, all focused on a common goal of pushing our swine industry forward. And we're excited and see a lot of opportunity, specifically in this area of feed biosecurity. 
That's great, Dr. Gebhardt. Lots of research there with endemic and foreign animal disease in terms of uh, feed by security and practice and ways to contain the spread of these agents. So we're very happy that, to have you been joining us this Science Disease Reporting System uh, report number 60. And thank you very much. See you all next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.